Welcome to Spotlight, the podcast for the domestic abuse sector. I am Emma Storey from the Safe Lives Knowledge Hub and this is the third and final podcast in our Spotlight series on older victims of domestic abuse. But our work on this hidden demographic continues and over the next two weeks we'll be publishing blogs, hosting webinars and having a live Twitter Q&A on August 31st. Stay up to date, follow us on Twitter at safelives underscore or on Facebook. So I've come to Cheshire this morning to meet with Jane who is an IDFA based in a hospital and Mel who is the adult social care rep for one of the Maracs in this area. Um, I've come to chat with them both to get their views and ideas about how we can offer support to older people who are um, experiencing domestic abuse. So what services can do to be able to identify people who are experiencing domestic abuse and how we can break down the barriers for individuals being able to access support. Um, So my first question to you both is, what do you think are the challenges that services face in terms of identifying and offering support to older people who are experiencing domestic abuse? I think for the IDVA service, the main problem we have is that we simply don't get referrals. Whereas I'm now based in the hospital and I'm starting to see some of these cases coming through, in the community, unless there was a big police incident, they simply weren't coming through to the unit. Right. From an adult social care perspective, um, most of the concerns around older people come into the teams via safeguarding, not necessarily specifically around domestic abuse. So I think um, reporting, although it's improved, it, people still aren't identifying that there is domestic abuse issues for older people. They're treating them rather as safeguarding. Right, okay. So what what do you think are the reasons why people aren't identifying? Is that about the fact that people don't recognise domestic abuse in older Mm. people? I think um, a lot of it is around recognition. I think the the, um, people have an idea that domestic abuse affects younger women, it affects women with young children or children of any age. Um, It doesn't really affect people um, over 65. And, and what we're finding more is that um, if people have had abusive relationships all the way through their marriage, obviously when they fall into our services at a later age, of course they're still going to be experiencing those relationship difficulties. So we're seeing probably a generational thing as well where um, people have lived within these in these relationships for a long, long time and have never maybe made a disclosure until much later. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing, it's not just not recognising the abuse, it's not realising that anything can be done about it and I think that's both from the victim's point of view and from perhaps social care point of view, that that is the status quo and so they just think we have to accept that and work with it rather than potentially changing the whole situation and, and, and even moving one of them. The, fam- the members out of the relationship. I think also another thing that, that we experience in adult social care is if we have other complications um, such as things like dementia or physical um, physical disabilities, they are more of a barrier because it 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 tends to take away the seriousness of any of any incidents, um, especially from a police perspective because. You know, they have to look whether it's in the public interest, whether they remove people from houses or relationships where people have got a diagnosis of dementia or Alzheimer's, even though that perpetrator may have always been abusive and is 
that uh, the abuse has, has been um, exacerbated by um, a mental health diagnosis. So it, it's about those extra complications for older people, I'd say. One of the cases I was involved in where where the, the police did remove someone and put them on a domestic violence protection order, she described that as the worst 28 days of her life because of course he was her carer and uh, and she was absolutely high and dry, she had no she had no proper care during that period um, and one of the big issues always is, is the cost of care and, and either the reluctance of the perpetrator to pay for care or for of reluctance of the victim to pay for care because always that's going to impact on the perpetrator's inheritance at the mm. end of the day. Mm. Yeah. And that's a massive, massive issue and a massive issue for people not getting the help that they need. Yeah, and I think the, the other thing that we've also become very familiar with is, is a situation maybe between a couple where either of them has been the perpetrator and, and then for whatever reason their physical or mental health deteriorates and, and we sometimes see a, a kind of um, change, change of responsibility in that relationship so a perpetrator may become a main carer for somebody which, which has its difficulties but equally if a victim becomes a carer and that cared for person has previously been a perpetrator we can sometimes um, pick up that there's sort of a revenge situation going on where um, this perpetrator who's always been quite a strong person in the relationship um, is now quite vulnerable and quite weak and situations have turned where the victim has also become a perpetrator. Yeah. Yeah, I've had a couple of cases quite recently at the Marrick where that situation happened. Hadn't been particularly violent um, relationship in the past, but has become very violent. And in both cases, the victim has got quite serious mental health problems and is literally assaulting the perpetrator on a daily mm -hmm. basis. And in those cases, the perpetrators are both men and have been very reluctant to ask for help and support. It's only when they've had really quite serious injuries that they finally ask for some support. Yeah, yeah. So have you got any thoughts about what services can do to be able to refer, you know, to get better at referring people or identifying people who are experiencing domestic abuse and referring them for support? I think one of the first things is that I think um, as professionals we don't ask that question about domestic abuse like we possibly would with somebody um, who's younger. Yeah. Um, I think GPs need to be better at recognising um, periods of depression, isolation. Um, the GPs are very good at, at referring to social services to say that people are socially isolated or you know that there's other reasons but they don't ask that question right. and I think as professionals in social care we need to be better at asking that question about domestic abuse. Um, I think one of the difficulties for older people I think it is a generational thing. I think maybe lots of older um, people have lived um, with domestic abuse all the way through a, quite a very long marriage. Um, and obviously, you know, times have changed. We are much more proactive at, at looking at domestic abuse now than we ever were. And I think maybe if if um, somebody in a, in a relationship had made a disclosure years ago, um, thinking about the, the values around marriage, it was more or less, you know, marriage is for life until death is due part. And very much so that I've had people say to me, 
oh, I did mention it to my mother or my father or wherever years and years ago, but was told to put up with it. Yeah. You know, you've made your bed, you lie in it, and you get on with it. Yeah. And you must be a very good wife, or you must be a very good mother. Therefore, you need to up your game. Or and I think the whole generational thing has changed now. And I think that, and and I think people want the opportunity to make a disclosure. They don't feel as bad at, at, at making that disclosure um, in social care where we look at um, not particularly domestic abuse um, relationships but relationships where um, the marriage has come to a situation where one of those um, people has become a carer which puts extra pressure on that house, um, extra demands on that individual and it can obviously raise anxieties and tempers can flare and whether you've you know, you've been um, quite a, a passive person in the past. Those extra pressures of caring for somebody can sometimes cause quite controlling behaviour. For example, we've had situations where perpetrators have withheld fluids because that means that people are going to the toilet less and that's less mess, where they've held medication back because medication affects the individual. And, and obviously these things have come to us under safeguarding, but really on, on, the, on the, the, the basis of things, it, it is domestic abuse about control. Yeah, yeah. And although they think they're controlling situations for the, for, in people's best interests, that's not necessarily what the outcome for that person is, because obviously if you withhold fluids from somebody, they become dehydrated, if you hold withhold medication that's got different impacts as well so it's quite a complicated situation to be in so Jane you've given quite a lot of examples of clients that you've worked with who are older have you noticed that there's a difference in the type of um, victims who are referred to you from the hospital so you're noticing any more or less um, people who are older being referred to you through that route or is it is it about the same what's the difference no definitely we get more older people and more people who are in caring relationships who may be not older but in, in caring relationships in kind of middle age um, I, I guess they, they fall into different categories there are carers relationships where perhaps the perpetrator is a partner um, and sometimes that that partner may may or may not have mental health problems. There are perpetrators where the victim is the carer of the perpetrator, and perpetrator and, and, and relationships where where it's the, the perpetrator is the carer. And also, a lot of uh, clients where the perpetrator is the carer who's the son or the daughter yeah. of the victim. Uh, and and there's a big issue in there in that any money that's spent on care in those relationships whether that's residential care or whether that's about bringing carers in is it's is going to impact very much on that person's inheritance and and, and, and that's quite quite noticeable literally uh, care packages will be set up when somebody's in hospital and then they'll go home and th and those care packages will literally the carer will phone up the, the next day or the next week and cancel the whole package and stop all of the people coming in or or or, or the victim will they'll say that the victim doesn't want that care to happen and the whole thing will stop just so that the money isn't going out and the other thing is they can become quite threatening so the carer themselves and the, and the perpetrator can become quite threatening to, to district nurses or social care staff who are going into the home so then they have to say well we have to send people in too so because that impacts again on the cost of the care so and and then they say well I'm not having four people coming into the house and so they'll 
you know, again, they'll stop the care. So it's, it's a constant kind of battle with, with finances, often when the carer is, 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 is the son or the daughter. And it's also a massive pressure on the son or yeah. the daughter. You know, it probably wasn't their life plan to be stuck at home looking after their 80-year-old mum or dad, or, or in some cases, both of them. Um, and so, you know, they can be, be really very neglectful. And sometimes the solution is about persuading them that they do, you know, working with the carer to persuade them that they do need that support so that they can have their own life as well because their lives become very small as well. So that it's not just, it's, it's not as simple as the normal kind of victim-perpetrator relationship because some of the work is about, is about supporting the perpetrator to provide mm. and, and to take some of the weight off the perpetrator because they can, they can become quite bitter about the, the what's happened to their lives really which which have end, you know have ended to a certain extent because they can't go out they can't socialize they can't meet new people mm. I think from the social care point of view, obviously the introduction of the Care Act last year allowed us to look more closely at carers' needs and responsibilities and I think as part of that we need to be involved as professionals in asking the carers about the pressures on them and about their caring role. Does that affect the way that they think about their loved one, whether it be um, mother, father, brother, sister or whatever? Because the, the pressure on carers is huge mm. and we rely on that support so much um, that sometimes I think we forget that it's a really, really demanding job mm. and it, it can be, um, it can ignite domestic abuse in, in that kind of situation because the pressures are so high um, and it may be that a, a relationship, has, there's never been any, any um, domestic abuse in, in a relationship until that point where that person, that individual becomes um, a carer for a, you know looking after somebody close to them so I think we need to I think we're very good as professionals at looking at safeguarding but not specifically identifying that support that domestic abuse services can offer specifically and what do you think are the barriers for the, the people themselves, or the victims themselves, being able to access support? So, say we, you know, we solve all the problems in terms of um, uh, enabling the professionals to be able to identify and refer appropriately. Then, what are the issues for victims themselves being able to engage? With I think support? older people don't see themselves as victims of domestic abuse at all. I don't think until maybe as professionals we mention it to them that they even realise that they have any choices, that they identify themselves as, as being in a domestically abusive relationship. I think there's lots and lots of barriers around support, one of them being accessing services. Just in itself, maybe people have mobility issues or physical or mental health problems that affect them getting out of the house and getting access to services. And equally, if they do have um, a carer at home who, who might be identified as a perpetrator, how do we get services in when that person might not leave the house either? Yeah. Um, it's very difficult to even make a telephone call to somebody who, who is in that kind of a relationship because... Uh, more often than not the perpetrator is there all the time so there's actually no way of making contact with that victim yeah it, it, that's, those are the problems that I've had trying to contact people as, as an idva it's just the fact that where I can see someone in the hospital the moment they go home 
it's almost impossible, you know, we'll then go to the Marek meeting a couple of weeks later and I won't have had any other contact with them because you simply can't contact them once they've gone home. And also, sometimes, certainly in one of the cases I've had, you know, the landline was disconnected because that was seen as too expensive and the perpetrator said, well, if, if the landline's there, then she will phone the police and he didn't want her to do that. So the landline was disconnected. He carried the mobile phone. So she, sometimes some of our victims don't have any means of communicating with the outside world. Sometimes they'll have one of the pendants, but only if the perpetrator is prepared to pay the money mm -hmm. to get a, a, a pendant alarm. Um, but I think the biggest barrier is... is the fact that people don't think they can change anything, they think this is my life, this is how it is, there's nothing I can do about it. And there's also a fear that if people do start to say, I, I want things to change, what if they then get sent back home and that cat's been let out of the bag, the perpetrator is then going to have a field day with them when they go home. Mm. There's nobody There's nobody to protect that victim when they go home. Often they're completely immobile, sometimes they're in bed, they can't move. You know, certainly I've had cases where you know, very frail people have, have been threatened physically with literally a fist in the face on a kind of daily basis. Um, you know, but you're not going to pick these things up unless they're coming to hospital and then unless there's somebody who's, who's able to recognise it. So whether that's somebody on the medical team or on the social care team who's going to recognise it. So I know that I'm only still touching the surface of what's actually coming through, through the hospital. And then when you see the, pe the, 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 the victim, it's then persuading them that actually potentially there are options. I think from, from my point of view, working with a, a, a couple of recent cases with um, older ladies in domestically abusive relationships, one of the big fears was that they would have to move from, from their home. Right. Um, one lady in particular who had a lot of physical disabilities had the house, the property that she was living in had been adapted, there was a lot of equipment in there. Um, but she, we, we, we persuaded that there were options for her to move out. Unfortunately, those options were very, very limited. And, and it meant rather than us accessing somewhere like a refuge um, or any independent housing, it was residential care. And, and that's a massive big thing for some people. Um, you know, residential or nursing care really has to be the last option, but it, it really shouldn't be an option to, to move out of a, a, a violent relationship. Um, and, and her concern was that if she moved out into residential care, even if it be short term, that she would never have the option of either A, returning home into the property that was adapted specifically for her and was in, and was in her name, or into another property she saw going moving from that house as, as going into care, right. which really wasn't um, an option, and, and she really didn't need to be in care. but. For us, as a, as a service provider, that was our only option. Yeah, yeah. And, and refuges don't generally have the support available to, to be able to cope with the kind of care needs that, that the victims tend to have. Yeah, yeah. All the social needs. All the social needs. Because a lot of refugees have generally have younger people, don't they? So yeah. they've got one older person. In. Yeah, yeah. So. What have you done or what can you think of that could be done to break down some of these barriers? So to address the issue of people not being referred and then to be able to enable older people to be able to access support once they are referred. Well, Jane and I have been involved um, in, in pulling
pulling together um, some training from adult social care and domestic abuse um, for all professionals, including adult social care staff, police, health staff, specifically designed around the facts um, of looking at adult safeguarding and domestic abuse within that forum as well. Um, we rolled that training out last year and it has been very, very successful and that the finances have, have enabled us to, to um, roll it out again for another year. I think it's it's less of a training session but more of a discussion session and an identification session, yeah. allowing professionals to think a little bit more outside of the box when they're dealing with people. Um, and I think it's been quite an eye-opener for people and I think it's given them a little bit more confidence in asking the questions and 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 looking at, at domestic abuse as an option rather than just under the umbrella of safeguarding. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and and I think it's fair to say that the adult social care just don't think in terms of domestic abuse at all and, and think very differently to perhaps to the, the social workers working with, with children. Uh, and 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 so I think we're certainly starting at a lower base, really, in terms of it's about recognition and, yeah. and accepting that there is abuse in these relationships. Right, you know, so we're, we're certainly starting from a lower level, I think. We are, and I think the big difference, obviously, between children's social care and adult social care is that we look at domestic abuse in children's services around protection of children. Um, but what we have to look at with adult social care is, is definitely mental capacity and it's and the care act you know how we, we have making safeguarding personal which the care act asks us to make people as safe as they want to be so people who have capacity to make decisions whether they be unwise ones um, they have the support around us looking at making them as safe as they want to be not necessarily rescuing them or removing them from situations but absolutely supporting them in the decision making process and supporting them to continue um, even within a relationship that, that on the surface doesn't seem to be very good for them. Um, so we have the difficult job in adult services as of obviously looking at capacity um, as well as adult protection. Um, so I think that's the difficulty that we have sometimes with children's social care and adult social care. Yeah, and, and certainly I've been in professionals meetings where it, it, it's incredibly frustrating because we are just looking in from outside and, and you know people want to stay in those relationships for whatever reason it is. That there is literally nothing you can do. I've been in, in professionals meetings where the police have said, if this was kids, we'd just take them out. And we can't do that. Yeah. Um, and unless we, we have capacity as an issue, and suddenly the moment somebody doesn't have capacity, then you are able to take those actions in people's best interests and you can get involved in, 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 in there could be a deprivation of liberty safeguarding so it, it done for that person so, um, so that that person can be taken out of that situation. If if that's what, what they're wanting to happen really or even if it's not wanting to happen mm. I guess. I mean I think probably um, an issue. for example at Marrick I mean I would say 90% of the cases at Marrick include either younger women or younger women with children and there is child in need, child protection issues. We have very very few cases presented at Marrick where they're older people yeah. um, and, and I think sometimes it's difficult for everybody around that at the table um, to start throwing out actions for Marek to follow up on because it's it's about 
um, that individual wanting to be part of of, um, of the process. And they actually are often different people who are doing them as well. So um, it, because people are so difficult to contact, the actions are are often reliant on the, the care team that's going in, so perhaps the district nurse, or you know, they're, they're, they're very different actions mm. to the actions we have in, in our other Marat cases because those are the only people who are, have got a lead into the house and who can actually, who are the eyes on the ground to, to kind of see yeah. what's happening. And, and those people themselves are also potentially put at risk. I've been involved in a couple of cases recently where, where the, the, the healthcare staff have been threatened by the perpetrators mm. or have been harassed by the perpetrators. It's very difficult to follow, follow Marrick actions up um, following a case being discussed where people just have capacity but don't want any support I think as professionals we feel quite uncomfortable about that yeah. but I think it's right to say that we've had open honest discussions around the table especially at Merritt with the high risk cases and that those those discussions are noted down somewhere so should anything go wrong in the future we, we have evidence that we have tried and we have supported people um, but like you say, unfortunately, we just don't have the same weight in our laws that the Ch Children's Act has with, you know, about preparing and making children safe. Yeah. But it, by the same token, though, for, for most of the victims in, 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 the, in the adult side, for the older adults, they're probably only just beginning to get their heads around themselves. This is, this is an abusive situation. And so in the same way that with younger people, you're often just sowing the seeds and it's the next time or the time yeah. after that that they actually think about change. Well, it's the same for, for older people as well. So, you know, it's, it's about as long as people know that their support's out there, perhaps the next time they come into hospital they might want to do something about that. Or perhaps the next time the, the district nurse sees something or speaks to them about it, they might want to do something about it. So in many ways, those parallels are there with younger people it's just that we're really you know we're only just starting to see those repeat marics coming through really yeah. I've only had a few repeat marics so far and, and I think as professionals we, we just need to get better at asking those questions though they're, they're quite difficult questions I think it's it's very different asking an older lady or an older gentleman you know towards the end of their life if they're having difficulties in this area than it would be to ask a younger woman or a younger man mm -hmm. it, it seems far more intrusive into their into their lives and I think the more we ask the questions the more opportunity people have got to make disclosures and ask for support so mm -hmm. I think it's really really um, imperative that as professionals we we, we look at at it as an option yeah. and because for a lot of people they say well I've been together we've been together for 60 years I'm not going to change anything now or, mm. or for, for one person I worked with for a long time she would say I'll know when the time comes you just keep ringing me I'll know when the time comes I'll, I'll let you know I will call the police I will do something about it but I'm not there yet I, as, as mm. you know my decision is I want to stay in this in this situation because for me this situation with him even though he's an awful carer and he's abusive and he's violent sometimes sometimes he's lovely and he is my carer and I don't get any love or support from mm. from the carers that I pay for who come mm. into the house and so you know she was very much saying I'll know when the time comes when, when I've had enough
Thank you for listening to this podcast. All the Spotlights content can be found on the Safe Lives website at www.safelives.org.uk.